You're listening to Unpaused, the podcast for women who want to reinvent their career after an extended break from work or mastermind a new one. Today, I begin the fourth season of the podcast, one that's been shaped by what I learned from the survey we did a month or so ago. One revelation was that younger women out there are looking for answers as well. They're grappling with the same issues that women who want to work have been managing forever. How to do it well without coming unstuck. Anyone who's subscribed to Future Women, the subscription-based website hub for working women, founded by former Women's Weekly editor Helen McCabe, may have heard of my next guest, Emily Brooks. Having started as McCabe's personal assistant, at only 26, Emily was appointed Future Women's editor. No mean feat. Two years on, and she's published her first book, The First Move, a book ostensibly about gender equality in modern romance. But a lot of the book is also relevant to women contemplating a career shift, whatever their age. Because the step of committing to going back to work, just like the act of committing to someone in love, is going to affect your life in multiple ways. Your family, your health, your friendships, and your state of mind. And if you haven't got the right people around you to give you the support you need and a plan for how it's all going to work, well, it's not going to work. I read the first move in one sitting, and my first thought was that there isn't a woman alive who shouldn't be reading it. Emily, welcome to Unpaused. Thank you very much for having me. If I can start with the central premise of the first move, girls are from a very early age told they can have it all. But as soon as they start dating, they start to pretend they're less ambitious and less qualified than they really are. Why, oh why, do women do this? I had a question that I needed to answer, and that was whether successful women faced a penalty in romance. So do men avoid dating women more successful, more educated, more ambitious than themselves? And through my research, I discovered that historically, yes, successful women have faced a huge penalty. Men do avoid those really ambitious, educated women women have developed this kind of odd social reflex. So we talk ourselves down in romance. And I guess the reason we do that is because of that datability penalty that we have faced for centuries. So we haven't been rewarded for being overly assertive, overly confident, overly ambitious in love. And Emily... I mean, is this the universal experience of you and all of your friends, that you actually feel you have to minimise your talent in a way in order to get past that first hurdle? I think it's varying for women. I think the women that I'm surrounded by are very strong. But what I've seen, because I have two younger sisters, is that younger women are really hesitant to do it. So women in their early 20s, but the women I know in their 30s are more willing to do it. And I see that more so as a confidence in themselves, but also being time poor. They don't have as much time to be messing around, not only because of biological clocks, but just because of their busy lives. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I liked that you framed deciding on your life partner as the most important decision a woman can make because I think you're absolutely right. I mean, make a mistake and it's really hard. But what I particularly liked was how you talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her husband, Marty. And 
being interested in that myself, let's just talk about Marty for a while and how wonderful. <laughs> Everyone's dream man. The story really depicts the teammate love that is really central to the theme of this book and, and what I talk about striving towards. Their relationship is so brilliant because they are both high achievers. They existed in a world that supported Marty's career more than Ruth's. So just go back one step for people who don't know. I mean, first of all, there's a fantastic sort of biopic about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, and in it they position this marriage as one that got off to quite a wobbly start in that they were both at university together at a time when women weren't at university generally. I think there were nine women in the year at Harvard out of 500. And then she presented herself as married already and with a baby, so double whammy. And then in her second year and his third year, he got terrible cancer. So what happened then? So at that point, she did both his his work from college and hers and looked after their child and looked after a sick Marty. So I think she averaged about two hours sleep then. But what was interesting about that time, it was formative for her because it taught her about work ethic and it taught her how much she could do. But then when they both eventually graduated, Marty got better. He went on to become a top tax lawyer in New York City. She had moved to Columbia to finish her last year of law and came out into the wide world to discover that no law firm would hire a woman. So she couldn't get a job. She eventually ended up in the education system teaching law and just happened upon a topic around gender and the law. And that's where she really became involved in the feminist movement. This was around the time of the second wave of feminism. She went on to become involved in the ACLU and her career really took off in fighting for gender discrimination lawsuits. At that time, Marty realised that she was really onto something and he started to take the back seat in terms of his career and his position in the relationship. He had taken the front seat for the first part of their lives, but the reason I use their story as an example is because he took the back seat when time called for it. Emily, I thought it was such a brilliant example because I think that that initial negotiation that admittedly was brought on by very difficult circumstances really set them up to know each other and what they were capable of. So that teammate love that you talk about, it's an achievable thing. And I think also what's also beautiful about their story was when she was fighting to or campaigning to become one, Marty fought extremely hard and maybe even harder for it because he thought it would be such an injustice if, if the world didn't get to see her properly. So he really campaigned for her to win that role. Yes, I re-watched some of it last night. Someone quoted Jane, the daughter, who's no slouch herself. I think she's a professor at Harvard too. And Jane said when they were children, she said, oh, your dad does the cooking and mum does the thinking. Yes, yes. Yeah, great line. Which is completely untraditional for that time. Yeah, for any time. 
another observation that really resonated with me was that you framed same-sex marriages as also something of an ideal that's achieved for women the domestic equality that in many cases the heterosexual relationship has not. I did want to be really inclusive in this book and the issue that I was talking about it could only talk about heterosexual relationships because the problem is caused by gender and the assumptions that come with that. And so same-sex marriage is a, a really great example of this kind of utopia that we talk about because gender is removed from the equation so assumptions aren't made. When assumptions aren't made, you have to have a conversation. So you talk through what each of your roles are in the house, what you both want to do, what you both need to do. Teammate love that I talk about is really a love based on real negotiation. And that starts with the foundation of getting comfortable having these difficult conversations and having the conversation instead of assuming something which is where things get difficult and where problems arise. Can I talk about getting more out of an existing relationship by coming to our other favourite couple, the Obamas, <laughs> the perfect couple? You quoted from Michelle's book, Becoming, and she said, couples therapy taught her that she was responsible for her own happiness. And men are taught to go and get what they want, whereas women are taught to be this, the supporter. So society enforces all of these things. So it's very easy to fall into that trap. I wanted to really position self-worth and focusing on ourselves as a central theme in this book because I think particularly dating literature is another thing that enforces this thinking. Dating literature teaches us how to be desirable, how to be wanted. It spends so much time focusing on these things, whereas I don't think much dating literature has actually said, well, what do you want? What do you desire? And that indirectly reinforces that our wants and our desires and our needs come in second. So I, I wanted to really flip that narrative in this book and in terms of how to do that, it's what the therapist said. You have to start thinking about it and you're not going to know what you want unless you actually reflect, but then you have to prioritise that as well. But the interesting thing about Michelle Obama's story is that when she started prioritising herself and going after what she wanted, she was better in the relationship and she was better to the relationship. I felt like I had a, a similar situation where I entered a relationship at 24 and I'm 28, almost 29 now. And I think about a year in, I realised because the man I'm with is nine years older than me, that I was with this really strong, quite forthright man who knew what he wanted and was quite loud. and. I had to really fight and prioritise what I wanted and voice that because women have a natural tendency to please, to avoid conflict, but the pleasing means we don't voice what we want or get what we want and we have to voice it in order to get it. 
Mm, but Emily, go back one step because you do spend a bit of time on this in the book. I mean, how do you actually work out what you want? What's your way of digging into what's important to you? Well, I talk about the doing things principle. The chapters have your own shit and keep doing it. And so often we have our own shit and we're doing it and then we enter a relationship and we stop because we get all consumed with the relationship. It's often all laid out for us, but maybe it's subconscious and we just do it because we enjoy it. When we stop it, we lose it, but we don't think about it because we were just doing it. But you've really got to think about those things that you do and evaluate why you do them and why they bring you joy and you have to keep prioritising them. And that, for me in particular, comes from spending 30 minutes on a Sunday evaluating what I like doing and writing it down and prioritising it and making sure that I can factor that into my week. And that was 30 minutes every Sunday keeps you accountable. And look, it doesn't have to be every Sunday and everyone manages it differently. But I think it's that that checkpoint that you have with yourself on a regular basis that gives you, A, the space to think about what you like doing, but B, keeps you accountable to doing whatever it is that you like to do. For me, it all comes back to taking some space to really think about yourself and your life and reflect. I think we all move through the world so fast now with so many distractions that a lot of us avoid doing it. And sometimes it's because we want to avoid the reality of our lives because reflecting is hard sometimes if you're not happy with where you are. So it really comes back to those reflection points. So I want to talk then about, well, we'll call it beauty, but you could also call it a woman's appearance as being the big chip in the game of love but also in the world of power for women. And this is very unresolved, that women are judged on their appearance. It doesn't matter how old you are. That is, of course, the first thing people see, and women are particularly harshly judged. And I wanted to speak about beauty because, yes, it doesn't just inform our place in the world, but it informs our place in romantic relationships. And you can pick that up even in small conversation between people. When my friends start dating a new guy, all the girlfriends sit around the table and the question is, what does he do? And when men sit around the table and a guy's dating a new girl, it's what does she look like? And that informs the key priorities, which is backed up by research, that men value women's appearance most in terms of deciding a partner and women value men's power in terms of choosing a partner. Women's beauty was historically and fancifully linked to fertility. And so that is why we see the young woman as beautiful and we see older women as not beautiful. And Naomi Wolf talks about it. She called it the beauty myth. So so women lose either way. I don't know any woman, no matter how beautiful she is, that is happy with herself and thinks that she is physically extremely attractive. What is so damaging about beauty for women 
is that it's linked to you. So it's an asset that will inevitably fade over time. When you look at old men with wrinkles, they've got this perception of being wise and they get more powerful. We see old women as, as weak, and I'm, I'm talking in generalised assumptions and stereotypes here, but beauty is an asset that will inevitably fade and women are encouraged to focus on it so heavily, almost as a distraction, to stop us from gaining power in any other parts of our lives. But Emily, don't you think that that means that a woman's got to be really determined to build up those experiences that speak to power over the course of a long life so that as one asset fades, namely beauty, the other asset moves ahead. Because you can look at Nancy Pelosi at 78. She exudes power. And I've just been reading a biography of her and they talk about that moment of her in the red coat when she'd been to see the president in the Oval Office and he had purported to sort of speak for her and she said, don't speak for me. I don't need you to speak for me. And so she stood up for herself and then she marched out of that office. She was in the red coat and the press caught her. Now, she's 78. It doesn't matter what sort of length she's gone to retain her beauty. At the end of the day, she's all about, she is a symbol of power. Yes, I see it in two parts to the process of kind of breaking down your relationship with beauty. And the first is awareness, being aware that it's something that will result in constant striving and you will never win. And with that comes the awareness that it's an unreliable investment, basically. And so you can choose to focus on it less. But I I think if you still only focus on it less, you're still thinking about it. But if you then channel whatever energy you were using to focus on it into other parts of your lives, like your career, like your friendships, like your involvement in the community, you indirectly shift whatever energy you are putting into that and invest it in reliable investments and investments that will grow with you over time. Emily, it's such a strong message and it's such an important one. You started to talk about friendship there and women have a talent for friendship because they're so good at talking and they're so intuitive. You know, they really support each other. Can we talk about how you see friendship and the sort of the pyramid of friendship that you allude to and where friendships go when love becomes all-consuming or, for that matter, when work becomes all-consuming? Just to preface that, I've fallen into the trap of my work taking priority and the last kind of nine months I've had to really focus back on friendships because I understood I was letting some go and I needed to start investing in them and friendships are two-way street and it's really difficult as our lives get busier but also as our lives get busier we need those friendships. The number I talk about is Dunbar's number. He's a sociologist called Robin Dunbar. And he talks about this this key number, which is 150. So we can have 150 
people in our lives. And when I say people, I mean friends and acquaintances. We can recognise about 5,000 faces, which is why our social media followings and connections can grow to much greater than that. But I'm an introverted person. And when I stumbled upon this number, it made sense to me because you meet more and more people throughout your life. I find it difficult personally to keep up. And that number then breaks down again. You can have five people that are your four friends and then you will have a further 15 and that will total to 20 and that is your closest friendship group. And then beyond that, you basically reach acquaintance territory. And I found that so useful because it's sometimes difficult to keep up with the amount of people that enter your lives. And I found that number really reassuring. I did too. And I think that those five people who are closest to you, that you must continue to reinvest in those relationships and continue to refill the font of friendship. It's reassuring when, because when you when you don't have a number like five, you feel like you have to continue to reinvest in, let's say, 30 people. And that's overwhelming, but five's achievable. So you actually do it. And your family fits into that and your partner as well. And the interesting thing with Dunbar's research is he said when you find a new partner and when you start that relationship, they will equal one and a half people out of those five because they're so influential and you spend so much time with them. But you also on average lose two friendships when you start a new relationship. And that's A, because you're spending more time with someone else, so it takes time away from other people, or B, your values change and your values shift, and that causes distancing. That would be the same with work. You take on a big job and people fall by the wayside. So when you say you reinvested in your friendships, when you realise that having sort of worked at warp speed and people fell away how did you revive those friendships and did you find any resistance to that yes yeah I found a bit of resistance and I think the good friends will understand and allow you back into their lives and and some other people won't understand and there's no hard feelings there that you've tried to write this book I was also working a full-time job so I was writing on weekends So I had very little time to spend with anyone else, let alone myself or my partner. And the good friends are aware of the pressures. And I've got a good friend who talks about the 100% rule. You only have 100%. You don't have 150%. You don't have 130%. So if you are investing 70, 80% of your life into work, you've only got 20 or 30% left to invest in the other parts of your life. And in terms of regaining those friendships, I think it's really very simple. You spend time with people again and you start giving again. And I think it always takes a few catch-ups to get get back to where you were. Well, I suppose you've got to acknowledge that you've learnt the lesson too. Yes. That's quite a big thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Finally, Emily, I wanted to talk about role modelling because I think this is relevant across the generations that so much of what we learn, we learn 
from observing those around us. And you quote quite a lot of research on how this all works. Yes. So we role model not only to our peers, but to future generations. There's a lot of research that supports that that men who are more involved in their family life and in the caring for their home and the children, their daughters grow up to be bigger risk takers. They take on traditionally male-dominated fields like STEM, entrepreneurship, and boys who grow up with working mothers take on a a larger proportion of, of care in the home in their families. So young boys and young girls learn from their parents But we also know that we learn from our peers. And what I found really interesting while doing the research for this book was equal relationships are now proven to be the most satisfying relationships. And this wasn't true 30 years ago. And I think that's because societies didn't, the political and economic structures didn't support equal relationships. And that's what's changed. And because they're the most satisfying and nourishing relationships now. I think we see that when we see our peers in an equal relationship, we want that now because it does come across as the most satisfying because I think when you're walking as equal paths as possible together, there's less room for resentment and also more room for empathy because you understand the other person's path because you're walking a similar one. But I think it's a good point that we don't just learn from our parents. And of course we learn from our peer group, but I hadn't really ever turned my mind to the role modelling of relationships, you know, intra-couple relationships with the peer group. I think what's great about the book is that you're getting all of these things out on paper. It's not so subtle anymore. You're actually saying it out loud. And so much of what you say, you're saying to young women, and and it's great that they're hearing it, but I think equally, it's great for their mothers to hear it. And so a conversation then comes up between mother and daughter, father and daughter. Emily, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. Emily told me that she used writing The First Move as a ploy to bring feminism to life for younger women. Using romance as the hook gave her the in she needed to make feminism as interesting to the under 30s as it is to their older sisters and mothers. That was clever. But there are so many parallels between what Emily has quite brilliantly written about love and the world of women negotiating their place in the world of work. For instance, our fixation on our physical appearance brings diminishing returns to capable women as they age. This is a message not just for young women, but for women of all ages. Focusing on how to be desirable is no substitute for putting in the work to discover exactly what your story is and what you want in life, as well as how to arrange things so that you can achieve it. Looking outwards to the community in which you live rather than inwards And using your beauty as the only measure of your power and worth is always going to be an own goal. That piece about marriage counselling teaching Michelle Obama that she was responsible for her own happiness is worth revisiting. In other words, don't ask, don't get. I read this book as the mother of four grown men, but it was no less interesting to me for that. 
Emily has something so universal to say about role modeling, investing in friendship, looking outwards to build a strong sense of self-worth. All of these are evergreen themes that apply just as much to women wanting to reinvent their working life as they do to the much younger dating scene. A couple of final thoughts. Emily's book, The First Move, is available in bookstores everywhere, and you'll know by now that I highly recommend it. If you're interested, you can also see further references to RBG, the documentary, also highly recommended, and some other articles on Emily, as well as Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. They're all in the show notes for this episode at unpaused.net. Finally, the survey results impressed upon us again that the best way to promote the podcast was by word of mouth. This might just be the moment to send a link to this episode of Unpaused to a young woman in your life. I'm Judy Stewart, and this episode was produced by Leonie Marsh, sound and recording by Jason Milhouse and Lana Christensen. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>